Hello, and welcome to You Philosopher. So today, I want to have a conversation about something that's very difficult. And I suppose it should come with one of those like disclaimers, because the conversation topic is, is not just difficult, but it's sad and concerning, because I want to talk about some of the conversations that we've been having um, in my class on Moby Dick and suicide. And because our conversation is going to revolve around the problem and difficulty of suicide, there's a whole series of concerns that come up. Uh, and for me, the most concerning is um, the possibility that a conversation like this somehow is seen as condoning suicide or encouraging it, or far worse, that we would um, somehow through this conversation help someone come to the decision that they in fact should. Um, and so I certainly want to put out there, you know, very clearly <clears throat> now that this isn't that. This isn't um, saying that, yes, people should or trying to glorify it anyway. And you realize that then part of the difficulty, say, if you're talking about literature or popular culture, I, we, we see this, seen this happen recently with a, a television show on Netflix. Um, that there's this problem with being able to even talk about suicide without it seen as kind of glamorizing it. And one wonder is, is why is that, why is that kind of immediately the case? Um, and I'm not entirely sure, but I do know this. It comes up a lot in our literature. Um, more so than we probably feel all that comfortable admitting and when it does come up in our literature, again, there's this worry, especially if you're in a classroom, that some student is going to go, oh, well, that's an idea. And because we're talking about literature or TV shows or movies, that there's, by, by the very act that we're glamorizing it, that we are somehow, you know, um, dramatizing it by definition, right? And romanticizing it sometimes by definition as well. And so I do think, however, that we may not be doing ourselves or people who are thinking about suicide not talking about it and not having honest conversations about it because it places them in a position, I think, of sometimes feeling like, oh, so you don't want to help me. You don't want to you don't want to treat this problem seriously, right? So there's an excellent chance that someone who is suicidal is feeling like they're not being listened to or not being heard or feeling alone. And so when we refuse to have conversations about it, we're treating their problems kind of the way that we treat children's problems, which by the way, I think is profoundly unfair insofar as when we when we look at kids and they're they're crying over a lollipop that's fallen on the ground or something, our tendency is to be like, oh, well, wait until you have to pay taxes, kid, then you'll have a real problem. And what we don't seem to have a conscious awareness of is how that is very possibly the most pain that that child is able to conceive of at that moment, right? Without as much linguistics as we have and without, you know, a, a clear sense of, of memory and, and duration of years worth of suffering, the child probably can't at that moment recall ever hurting 
quite as much as they're hurting right now. And they're awash with emotional content. And because of the development of the brain, they, um, they, they have even less kind of control of being able to compartmentalize it. So the, the difficulty of then of kind of treating suicide like it just needs to be an off-topic issue places people who are suicidal already in this forbidden otherized zone. Um, made only probably far worse by, for many of us, uh, the religious connotation, like y y you're also seriously thinking about doing something really wrong, like a sin that can never be forgiven, right? Like So like out of the film and, uh, and comics, uh, Constantine, right? Um, you know, so you have a character who tries to kill himself and because he tries to kill himself, he's already by definition damned, right? Which um, many people of Catholic and Christian faiths hold that because it's a murder and you can't repent for that particular murder because, right, you're dead, um, you, you're, you're damned. You, you can't escape that damnation. And so what that means, if you think about it, is, is that someone who is thinking about suicide is in fact thinking about doing something that damns them eternally, right? In other words, they're thinking about doing something that we, we're treating like any other sin, in fact, that, um, you know, you might as well be thinking about murdering someone else. You might as well be thinking about committing rape. You might as well be thinking about doing something truly heinous and evil because it's something that's uh, damnable for. And so that brings us to Moby Dick. So I've been talking with my students about Moby Dick, and it's just such an amazing novel. I really do recommend reading it if you get a chance. And for me, reading Moby Dick, and this is this is just me, right? This is just my personal take. I think the text is dealing a whole lot with the question of suicide. In fact, I think it starts there from the very, very, very beginning, right? So it starts with... Um, this main character, our narrator, Ishmael, basically telling us that the reason why he's going to go out to sea is because it's, it's the alternative to pistol and ball, right? Um, he, he talks about like when, when his feelings, his humors start getting the best of him. And, and so he's basically describing what seems to be like when he starts getting really depressed, he'll, um, go out to sea. And he, he has this quotation where he, where he talks about like, it's basically this alternative to pistol and ball. And to me, interestingly enough, as I'm trying to flesh out Ishmael, who's not a particularly well fleshed out character in a standard way, right? We just don't learn all that much about him because you realize like, well, why is, why is this guy perhaps suicidal? Right? Because he talks about like, he's just his descriptions are the Melville's descriptions are just amazing. He talks about like you know you, you start he, you start getting to this point where you feel like just tipping people's hats off, you know. And when he finds himself just kind of standing in front of um, places that sell coffins or walking after funeral processions, like and you just imagine this guy who um, you know walks past. A company, you know, like a little business, a shop that's got their, they've got their coffins in the window, and he just stops there and, you know, and that's, I mean, it's so much better, I think, than just saying, you know, oh, and I felt like killing myself, you know, it's like, 
I, I found myself longingly looking at coffins, you know? And um, so this issue of him going out to sea, what's interesting is the ways that he's not fleshed out include things like, who does he say goodbye to, right? Who misses him? Uh, we're not really given any of that. It, it, and so if there's a reason why he's depressed, arguably one potential answer is, is because he's alone, right? Because he's able to, his ability to just go out to see suggests that either he doesn't have people or he feels like he doesn't have people. And he makes this immediate connection to another character very early on, very quickly, um, a character named Queequeg. And within, within just a few chapters, and basically like they're holding each other in bed and having these long conversations and so on and so forth. And it's like, this isn't bothering anyone else in his life. They, you know, it hasn't interfered with any other relationship. And so that seems to suggest to me that he really doesn't have any of these other relationships and that maybe is perhaps why he's gone out to sea. And so interestingly enough, this is especially interesting to me. It, I definitely read it as if Ishmael is a teacher. There's a few hints that suggest this, though it's not stated. Um, before the novel actually starts, there's a couple of of quotations beforehand in the etymology section. Um, one talks about a pale usher, um, which is a, a word at the time for teacher, and it talks about him dusting his old grammar books, and I think he might have TB, uh, tuber tuberculosis. Um, so like you have this like kind of old dying sickly teacher, and, um, and then you have another etymological quote that is basically from a grammar book, right? So you've got these two like teacher things First, first thing in the text. And then um, just a, a few more pages into the first chapter, he talks about how he's comfortable being a sailor and how people might be confused about that because, you know, some people are in these positions of power and they may not, you know, feel comfortable taking, taking orders, you know, like it's hard to imagine a schoolmaster. And so he, then he talks about a schoolmaster who feels, you know, this power and being able to kind of dictate to students and so on and so forth and gives us a bit of a description of that, which again seems to suggest that he's a teacher, especially because Melville is very keen on and very careful to make the language of each character kind of different. And, um, in other words, so you have Queequeg who speaks one way and you can tell it's Queequeg's voice, right? Uh, Ahab speaks one way, right? Some of the old salts, you know, they each have their own specific mannerisms in the way that they speak. And Ishmael's is verbose, right? He uses these long terms and he's kind of like showing his intellect off with regularity, you know, you know, drop, you know, name dropping philosophers and his knowledge of, of Roman history. And, you know, he's talking about Cicero. So anyways, this suggests to me he's a teacher. And the only real reason why I mentioned that is because I kind of imagine him having like his teacher's desk and he's alone basically. Right. And, and, and not to digress too much, but there's few things that are quite as lonely as teaching. I think, I mean, I don't know. I haven't, I'm sure that there are far lonelier things, but there, it has this weird quality, unlike some other careers, of not really seeing your accomplishment in the same way. Like, you can't really take credit. Like, if you build something or you fly a plane or whatever, like, you can take credit for that. But when you're a teacher, you can't say, hey, look at the mind I made. And if you did, 
it's kind of arrogant if you think about it, right? Because the student's the one who's really done all the work for their own mind. And that's not to say that teachers don't work incredibly hard. They do. But the work that they do doesn't translate necessarily into a success. It's not, it's not direct. The student has to also pick up their part of that burden. And so there's these weird qualities of going in and being a teacher and you basically have to be willing to take in everyone else's emotional needs and meet everyone's emotional needs and their intellectual needs and be there for them. But you yourself can't really be yourself. It's one of the, the certainly the loneliest feelings I've ever experienced insofar as they can't really know you, but you have to be 100% there for them in every, every way that you can be. And I think one of the best examples of this is, you know, just a small like kind of microcosmic example that, if you're a teacher and you're sick, so you email your students or something and you say, I can't come in today, I apologize, right? The students, first of all, you know will be happy. Like if you tell them beforehand that you're not going to be there, yay, you know, and, and then if you're emailing them about it, you're very lucky if you get an email saying, oh, well, I hope you feel better. Um, I've literally never seen an email from a student in response like, oh, I hope you feel better and I'm really sorry we were missing class. I was looking forward to it, right? Um, but what you will get with regularity are emails that say things like, um, will we still have the quiz next week, right? Is the homework still due? And so you realize, oh, their email's working, <laughs> right? So I'm, I'm, not, I'm not getting people asking me if I'm okay uh, not because their email isn't working or because they didn't get my email, but because they don't care. <laughs> and that's rough. That's, that's, that's a rough feeling. It's a, in other words, it's a weird feeling to realize that the people that you're spending most of your time with, like you spend more time with your students than you do with like your, your partner and your friends and your family, probably by far. So you know that the people that you spend most of your emotional energy on don't want to be with you. Right, like they would do almost anything they could not to be there. Like the only reason why they're with you right now is because they have, they feel like they have to be. Like something bad will happen to them. Like they won't get the grade that they want, or um, you know they get in trouble with their parents or something like that. And that's like a mind blowing feeling. Like the only reason. So every day, the people I put the most energy into are the people who want to see me the least. Right, and that's not to say other people don't put you know, emotional energy into jobs. Like you go to a job and you realize, wow, I'm here with my coworkers and they're not here for me. They're here just to work. But your emotional energy might be being put into building something, you know, copy editing, editing something, you know, you're doing something. And there's a, there's maybe even a possibility that you're, that you're all doing that because you all think that's an important thing to make. And, but still the vast majority, when you are putting emotionally, emotional energy into people, you're putting emotional energy into people who really do want to see you. Um, you know, at home, presumably, uh, your friends, so on and so forth. You know, when you're a therapist, people come because they want to see you. When you're a doctor, they come because they want to see you. A dentist, you know, there's a reason why dentists have really high suicide rates because they're, they're like, people make it so clear that they're only there because they have to be, like they don't, they don't want to be. And, and, and a similar thing I think can be said for psychiatrists and, and for doctors in general and so far as well i know that they're just coming to see me because they're not well but there is a clear sense of they're coming to see me because i'm me because i have something to offer them 
But there's other careers like teaching where you realize they are only here, the people that I'm putting the vast majority of my emotional energy into are only here because they're forced to. And so I imagine Ishmael kind of there, you know, and some, so I had a student say, you know, we were talking and I, I, I had a student say something along the lines of, um, you know, why, you know, why is Ishmael so willing to take orders and why is he so comfortable with this? And, um, you know, we were talking about his skill sets because, you know, he doesn't really have skill sets for being a sailor, so on and so forth. And um, it was interesting because one of the things the student said was um, something basically along the lines of, well, that's true. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't really do anything. He just teaches people stuff. You know, and it's such, such a funny thing to say to a teacher, right? I mean, he just he just teaches people stuff. So, like, he doesn't have any actual useful skills. So, I imagine a student says something in the classroom, and Ishmael's there behind that big teacher's desk, you know, and he just kind of looks down in his drawer and pulls it out, you know, and it's got the pistol and ball in there. Not for the student, but he's, like, for himself, you know, like... And then, you know, he has to, you know, go back to work. So... As far as Ishmael's psychology is concerned, um, that to me is, is particularly of interest. I think, I think this guy is going out um, wailing because of uh, probably his loneliness, Just maybe he's just a depressed person in general, so on and so forth. Now, one of my teachers, probably one of the most brilliant people I've ever studied with, Sam Kimball, points out this connection and Melville makes this connection also in the etymologies of between the word wailing, like I'm going to go catch a whale and then wailing the screaming because you have no words for your pain. Right? So the, in other words, babies wail, they, they, they wail because they have no way to articulate the pain. And I think many of us have experienced that even in our own adult lives. We don't have a way to say what we're feeling. There are no words that can capture our pain, so we go wailing. And again, my intuition is, is that there aren't words to capture Ishmael's pain and his feeling of loneliness, and so he goes, he goes wailing, right? Pardon, pardon the pun, but he literally, literally goes wailing. And this also connects to this character Ahab, who has been so horribly injured by the whale, that his pain his pain can't be uttered. Right there, there's there are not words that can really clearly describe how much this man is suffering, and just the despair and hate and pain and anguish, and it can only be an action, right? He can only take an action, and you know so. Melville describes it, Ishmael describes it as, you know, he piled upon the whale's white hump the sum of all general rage and hate felt by his whole race from Adam down. And this, this suffering is leading people on this suicidal venture, right? It is, it is a suicidal, like, whaling is dangerous. It is dangerous. And so it's like they go out there and they go to the they go to the precipice of the cliff, so to speak, right? It's it's there. And it's like it's almost as if there's a sense of which Ishmael is trying to avoid taking his own life, but is going to put himself in a position where nature can take it for him. Because it's kind of like, well, if you're suicidal, 
why don't you just go ahead and do it? And so that, that ends up being the fundamental philosophical question and the one that's really dangerous to talk about. Because as soon as you say that, people are like, why, why, good, good point, Nick, why don't I? Right. And then if you don't have a good answer, tragedy ensues. And so that's part of, I think, what I want to talk about. Part of the scariest thing of this question is I'm not sure that Melville's giving us much of an answer in Moby Dick because it's basically like one suicidal form replaced with another. Like I could use the pistol and ball, but instead I'm just going to go do this thing that really endangers my life instead. And that, that doesn't seem to be, oh, well, here's why you shouldn't. And this is kind of rife in our literature, in a sense, right? So you've got um, so many people trying to come to terms with death through it. So if you look at things fall apart, right? Uh, Chinua Achibe, right? And Okonkwo and his suicide. And you also have it, I think, really importantly in Hamlet, right? And I'm just kind of scarred by the realization that Shakespeare, at least as far as Hamlet is concerned, doesn't give us a good answer to this question of like, why shouldn't we? And when I say he doesn't give us a good answer, what I mean is, is he gives us an answer as to why we don't, but he doesn't really give me a great answer for why I shouldn't, right? In other words, if you look at the, this famous soliloquy, right, the to be or not to be, that is a question, right? Look at it. Just, it's not that long, like, pull it up on your phone and read through it. Because I think sometimes people miss, like they're like, oh, it's this kid, he's like to be or not to be, that is a question. Like we don't realize like he's really dealing in a deep philosophical angst. The man is suffering, he's, he's wailing, right? He can't really articulate his pain except through actions. Like he starts taking these really suicidal actions, right? He doesn't direct it inward, he directs it outward, right? He knows that his ends his actions are going to end in his death, right? And But if you look at the soliloquy, he asks this question, you know, should I kill myself or shouldn't I? That's, that's what I need to ask, you know, to be or not to be. That's the question. And then he starts exploring it and like, why not? And he, he says things about how much we suffer. And he says, basically... There's no reason not to, given how much we suffer, except the reason he, he like, throw, Shakespeare and Hamlet, like, throw this gauntlet down. Like, oh, the reason why we don't is fear, right? Fear of the undiscovered country. In other words, fear of where else we might be going. Because he, he says this, like, rationally speaking, why would we put up with, like, the ravages of old age? Why would we put up with oppression and indignities? You know, why would we, why would we put up with having our hearts torn out. Why would we put up with those things if, if we weren't afraid? Like, if there's, an, if there's an actual escape from it, why wouldn't we? And he just says, fear, basically. You're just, we're just afraid. And I don't know, it, it, it made me think, like, I was like, man, this is, there's a great idea for a story here, right? Like, imagine a society in which you could do this, right? Like, you could literally just go to the doctor and be like, you know, I'm done, man. Like, I'm, re I'm, I'm ready to go. And the doctor was like, okay, well, let's just, you know, get your affairs in order, sign some paperwork here, and here's a pill. I'm like, man, that'd be brilliant. That'd be a brilliant story. And then I realized Futurama's already done it. And it's like, oh, okay. 
never mind. Because they have these like little suicide booths, you know, you just can't take any more. And you go and you pay the suicide booth and they give you like the death of your choice. And well, what would, what would that be like? And it's, so, it's such a horrifying thought. But what if we can't give Shakespeare? What if we can't give Melville? What if we can't give a particularly good answer? You know, the answers start being things like, well, we can continue to accomplish more. You know, we can continue to do more with our lives. But then there's also that kind of the stranger, you know, by Camus, that, that reply where you realize like everything you do eventually comes to naught, right? Like, so you can accomplish all this stuff, but like every accomplishment you have ends up being taken away from you eventually. So... Isn't it, isn't, just, isn't it just kind of a delaying game? I mean, for myself, sometimes I just think about it in terms of, well, I mean, I'm going to die anyways. Why rush it? But that's not a good answer to someone who's really suffering at the moment because they're like, no, no, I have a really good reason to rush it. And then, then we start doing things that I think sometimes are very unhealthy for people who are in this mind state because we start, we start treating them like there's something wrong with them. You know, you're not well. And, well, that might be true, at least in some sense, right? There seems to be something like where if, if we are so sick, like we're in so much pain physically or, or our minds, you know, the, the chemicals are so, um, so kind of askew that we can violate that pr kind of primal need to live. That does seem to suggest that something's gone awry. But on the other hand, um, people suffer tremendously, right? They suffer a lot. And they, their response really might be, no, I have every right to be this sad. I had this terrible thing happen to me. I mean, look at people like in Syria and what's happening there. Like, can we really walk up to those people and be like, no, you have to live. You owe it to... And we start saying things that we realize, I think, on some level, like a kind of profoundly selfish, right? That it's really about us. Like, but I don't want you to go. Or think about what you'll do to your grandma. Like, those replies, at the end of the day, suggest that we have an obligation to continue to live because we owe something to other people. But what position does that put people in who either, A, feel like they've met enough of their obligation, like, I've suffered enough, I don't owe anyone anything else. And B, um, people who feel like they don't have anyone to whom they do owe an obligation. And so they, they do need that, but, you know, they don't have kids. They, you know, they don't have a family to take care of. They don't have someone to take care of. So to, to whom do they owe the struggle that Hamlet describes and the, the struggle that Ahab is clearly experiencing? Like, who do they owe it to? And... That only becomes more depressing because they look at it and they go, wow, I don't actually really owe anyone my life. Or um, I've paid my dues, right? Like I've, I've suffered enough. I've committed my sins. Maybe the world's even kind of better off, right? And so our replies tend to be things like, well, you just need antidepressants. There's something wrong with you. And it minimizes the legitimacy of human suffering as if you'll be better soon and um, it'll uh, you'll realize that this was just silly. You'll be glad that you didn't. And but for people who have gone through so much trauma, like then there becomes the problem of like basically telling them 
The thing that you care so much about right now that's causing you to suffer someday won't matter as much. And for some people that's like, okay, good. Like I really want to get over this loss, right? So like they go through a breakup. I, I don't want to feel this pain anymore. Someone says, don't, you know, I know it's hard now, but a, maybe a year from now you'll look back and it, it will be a little bit easier. And that, and, and that eases their mind. But that's harder when, like, if you look at someone, say, who was married, right? And they're, they're, they're they don't have to be married, but they, they have like that really close intimacy and then the other person dies. And so you go, okay, um, someday this won't hurt as much. And then they feel like they're violating the love and the promises that they made to that other person. It's like, wait, you're telling me that someday I won't be as in love with this person and that's supposed to make me feel better? Like, just because they've gone someday, I won't, I won't feel the way that I do about them now? And you could imagine that someone could feel that way even just about a breakup. Like, people are like, well, you need to move on or something like that. And the person's like, so basically what you're saying is this person who... I am right now who I happen to like, this person who really does love this other person. It makes me a better person that I love them. Um, someday I'm not going to be that person. I'm going to not be in love with them anymore. And that's a terrifying thought, I think, probably for a lot of people. Like, that you will be so fundamentally different that you don't love them anymore or that you're over it. And what does it mean to be over it, right? It, it means to basically be a different person and maybe someone you don't want to be. And I think we, we, it's, it's, it's also becomes problematic because if you look at it the way that we deal like with older people or with the elderly, and there tends to be kind of this idea like, well, they've lived enough life or maybe they've suffered enough. So like all those arguments that we give younger people like, nah, man, it's not about how much suffering you've had, you know, um, those are like arguments that we reject for the elderly. By that, what I mean is, is, you know, we kind of expect that the elderly should be more comfortable with their death in some sense. It's really tragic and unfair. It's like, well, you know, grandma's 70, she's lived a good life, you know, as if there's a point in time where you're like, I've lived enough life, right? And you, grandma, you've lived enough life, someone else's turn now, right? And grandma might be like, nah, man, like, this is cool. And, but we seem to be kind of like more okay with it when they're like, yeah, I've had enough time. I'm suffer I've suffered enough. I've lost enough people. And we go, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But if, if that's like a 20 year old, we're like, no, no, you haven't, you know, lived enough life. Like, so it, it's weird. It's like, on one hand, we do think that someone can suffer enough that it becomes reasonable you know, you, you're in enough pain, you suffered enough, you're old enough, you know. But on the other hand, we're like, no, your, your pain doesn't constitute sufficient reason to stop living. And so there's like this huge condemnation for it, which only makes the suicidal person feel worse about themselves, especially when we might remind them that there's other people who have it far worse off. Like, oh, I know you're having a bad time, right? I know you, I know that, you know, you lost your job or I know that, you know, you were going through a breakup or whatever, but like, hey, you're not, you're not being like daily raped, you know, in, in, in Syria or something, you know, like you're not going through that, 
right? Or you point out other like really inspiring people who've done, like they're like, man, those people really have a reason to not want to live, but look at what they're doing. Look at what they're doing. Look at how they're overcoming. And then, then basically what you're telling the person is, is feel bad for not feeling better, right? Feel bad for not being happier with what you have. And so the person now gets to feel like, oh, well, I'm a terrible person because I'm not happier with my life like those people who are really suffering. And so basically what we've done is we've just found another way to like marginalize other people's pain, right? Oh, well, like, like again, like with the kid, like someday you'll know what real suffering is like. But whatever pain that person is going through is the most pain, like if it's drawing them to that point, it's the most pain that they can possibly imagine, right? It's more pain than they've ever had in their lives. And we might tell them things like, well, someday that pain will be over or it could be worse, but it's hard to tell them that it could be worse because they literally can't imagine it being worse. And even if they could, it basically just says, it's not that bad. Be happy about it. Have the right perspective. You're the problem, not the world, right? Um, or they're being, you know, they're being placed in a position where they just kind of have to write and that seems to me to be concerning as well, because what if that sense of improvement is one that torments them? Like it means that something they love wouldn't be something that they love anymore or something like that. And that would be really sad. So, I mean, there's just all these problems that come along with it. And what do we, what do we, what do we say to people? And our, our literature doesn't seem to really be giving us fantastic answers for this problem and i certainly i certainly don't have any answers but i i do think that we're remiss if we don't let people talk about it and if we treat it lightly that if someone seems like they're in this position that we treat them like they're just um that they're just looking for attention right because for some people, perhaps it's their way of wailing. Like they feel alone and they need someone to look at them and to, to really see them. And so they maybe they mention something about suicide and we get mad at them and we treat them like they're doing something wrong and like they're just asking for attention. But also sometimes people in that position, it takes a lot of effort to let other people know that they're thinking about it because of the weight of shame feeling like it's something that's bad, feeling like you're doing something, you're thinking about doing something really selfish, abandoning everyone else to their problems, right? That you're weak. And maybe they also know that one of the most dangerous things to do if you want to successfully commit suicide is tell other people. And so they know that if they hint at it, they might eliminate the chance that they could do it. And so when they reach out and we kind of slap them back, like they're being ridiculous, we place them in even more danger and verify their belief that they really didn't matter and that their feelings don't really matter and that no one cares. So I, I genuinely don't have any particularly good answers to this, but I, I, I do think that Melville provides us with a little, a little bit of something insofar as Ishmael has this relationship with Queequeg. Now, I don't, that doesn't seem to prevent Ishmael from going wailing. It, it, it doesn't prevent so much of the tragedy and pain that happens. Um, 
throughout Moby Dick. But it does seem to me to be a good thing, and this is just kind of a, a, a Nick Michaud thing, a good thing that Queequeg is so willing to reach out and hold Ishmael and keep him safe even for a little while. And for those of you who've read the book, I don't want to give too much away, but you know that there's another way in which Queequeg saves Ishmael. And that to me seems to be important, that we don't have any particularly good answers to this rational problem, um, at least purely you know, philosophically. But we can reach out and hold other people if not literally, metaphorically. So that being said, if you've managed to get through this ridiculously longer than normal conversation, for which I apologize, um, and these are thoughts or pains that you've ever dealt with, I want you to know that you're cared about. Um, and that's easy for someone to say, you're like, Nick, you don't know me, you know, like we've never met, but there is someone who does want to hold you, right? There is someone who, at least at this distance through this screen, right, wants you to know that you are loved and lovable. And even without knowing that person, in other words, that there's, it, it, it's kind of like, we recognize that like every, every kitten is pretty lovable, right? You're, there's something like inherent in kittenness that's kind of lovable. And there's also um, something about your humanity that's in fact lovable. So even if we don't know each other, right, you, you warrant a hug. And um, you might go, oh, but there's all these other horrible things about humanity and you're not going to get a whole lot of argument. But there's also, and forgive me for this, kind of a few horrible things about kittens too. But that doesn't mean that they deserve not to exist. And that doesn't, that doesn't negate the... Um, the love that they warrant. So um, anyways, for everyone out there who's having a hard time, I, I certainly hope you find a hug. And if not, let this be like a, a conversational hug for you. And I hope it helps a little bit. So um, with that, I wish you a wonderful week.